Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 78 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, my guest is Dr. Brent Vine, a professor emeritus of classics and Indo-European studies at UCLA. His published research addresses a broad range of topics in the study of the ancient Indo-European languages and their reconstructed ancestor, Proto-Indo-European. Most of this work concerns phonological, morphological, and etymological problems related to the linguistic background of Greek, Latin, and Vedic Sanskrit with forays into other areas, such as Classical Armenian, Phrygian, Germanic languages, and Old Russian. For many years, in parallel with his appointment in the UCLA Department of Classics, he served as head of the UCLA program in Indo-European Studies, where he held the A. Richard Diebold, Jr. Chair of Indo-European Studies. In this episode, we discussed how linguists divide their field into subfields and periods, the development and importance of meter to both Homeric poetry and other forms of Greek poetry, and whether the Greeks had an ancient equivalent to Shakespearean English. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Great. Thank you so, so much for joining me this morning for you, I guess, as you're in Japan, which is exciting. But I want to start us off with what I hope will be a fairly easy question, which is, when did you discover your interest in linguistics? Yeah, that, that actually is an easy question, because there was a uh, a specific point where that, where that happened. Um, it happened when I was an undergraduate, And I was a classics major, so I was doing Greek and Latin literature, having having had um, lots and lots of Greek and Latin before I got to college. Um, I actually started Latin in seventh grade, and then I added Greek in 10th grade. And so by the time I got to college, um, the natural thing was to become a classics major. But as a sophomore, I took a course on the history of the Greek language, and that was just incredibly fascinating to me. And and that was really the point at which I began to realize that although I, I deeply loved classical literature and continued to work with it in various ways, 
uh, it was really the languages themselves, Greek and Latin, that really excited me. Uh, and so I followed that up the next year with the corresponding course on the history of the Latin language. And that kind of sealed the deal. Uh, so from that point, I realized that this is really what I what I wanted to do. Those who I think I had a fascination with the languages and a, a ton of friends also coming through college did as well. But I don't think any of us had a good grasp of what studying linguistics itself was. We just kind of assumed it was just part of, oh, okay, you learn the languages and kind of how to construct them when you're learning them, and then it'll help you with English. You know, can you tell us a little bit more, like, so what goes into the decision, if you do love classics and the history part, but like, what would be the thing that pushes somebody to focus more on the linguistic aspect, rather than just taking the languages part of the bigger picture of studying the classical world? Mm -hmm. um, well, there's, there's kind of a another angle to this whole question, in a way, in, ter in terms of my own developing interests in, in this material. And that had to do with the types of study that get done by professionals in the field. So when you're studying literature, um, say, say you're reading, um, I don't know, you're reading a play of Sophocles or something, and all kinds of interesting discussion questions come up. Why, why did the plot gets structured in this way. Why? What do you think about this, this or that character, and so on? Part of the attraction, in some ways, of humanistic study is that there's no right answer to many of these questions. Um, there can be five different answers to to questions about uh, about character and and dramatic construction and so on, and they could all be right in different ways. That was uh, becoming a little frustrating for me. And when I got to taking these courses in the linguistic side of Greek and Latin, it became clear that actually there are questions and there are answers. And you can investigate a question and you can arrive at a solution, which is either right or it's wrong. And, and this was very attractive to me, even though I'm, I'm not um, oriented towards math at all. Uh, I'm terrible with, with actual math, but the idea of problem solving in a way that one can do with linguistic study and that you really can't do in quite the same way with other types of humanistic uh, research was very attractive to me. So that's that's just one uh, important angle that I, I wanted to mention. The other thing um, to follow up on your question a little bit more is that there is a big difference between general linguistics or synchronic linguistics, as, uh, as it's sometimes called, which is the study of language in general or the study of languages as they exist at given uh, given time periods, difference between that and historical linguistics or diachronic linguistics. And when I took these courses on the history of Greek and the history of Latin, these were, of course, diachronic linguistic approaches to the languages. And although, uh, of course, you, you can't really separate the two in, in all respects, still the focus on the historical background of the languages was more appealing to me. Um, I was more interested in learning 
you know, where did these languages come from and how did they develop rather than um, detailed questions about the nature of the grammar, let's say, of uh, of Greek or Latin at a given at a given time, although that's very important and kind of enters into anything you do in in certain ways. It's so interesting, and I love how that there there are those two angles that I don't think we properly consider unless we talk to someone who who does know this information. And I wish more people did so they could better inform us. Because I just from what you're saying, it sounds like I might have had a friend who might have maybe been a little more at home in linguistics than proper classics but of course she didn't know so so she um became a classicist anyway it's interesting to hear you describe languages this way also because as someone who also is not very good um with with math i've heard definitely from a few people now that trying to unpack ancient languages is sort of like you can do it in a very i don't want to say like mathy way but but there is some sort of process where it becomes like a giant equation that you can sort of start to unpack and see how things developed. So I just, that is something that was sparked in my mind when you mentioned that. And I also wanted to, to mention that. So I thought that was kind of cool. And I think just for my own knowledge, and maybe people in my audience might or might, might not know as well, is I think when there's the perception that when you say, you know, oh, I study linguistics and I study ancient languages, I think the something that pops into my head immediately is, oh, okay, so when, you know, when you say linguistics, are, are you studying the development of, like, ancient Greeks starting with, you know, the Minoans all the way to when people started to speak Latin um, when, when the, you know, Romans came in? Um, and so I'm wondering if you could explain to us a little bit about, you know, for your subfield, um, like, how do you section off the periods in which to study or the, the parts of development? One of the most exciting for me features of, of studying the history of Greek and Latin is that it's extremely important to study the oldest attested documents in, in both languages. And and this was one of the things that was kind of um, eye-opening to me when I was taking these these courses. For example, in on the Latin side, classics departments, when you study literature, well, you know, there's a there's typically a focus on the great um, the great authors of the Augustan period. Maybe sometimes there would be uh, you'd have a chance to take a course on an author or one or more authors who was working in an earlier period, say an author like Plautus or Terence, getting back into the period called Early Latin, where the language is, is pretty much the same in, in most respects, but there are a lot of differences because, after all, it's, you know, it's... Uh, uh, 100, 200 years earlier than uh, Caesar and Cicero, and things have happened to the language. Okay, but when you study the historical background of Latin, you have to go back even farther, and you have to look at ancient inscriptions in Latin that go back even to, in some cases, the, the 6th and 5th centuries BCE. So we're talking a half millennium before Cicero, let's say. And in some of these documents, well, the Latin is so different from 
ordinary classical Latin that literally, literally some of it uh, still cannot be understood. There are still some mysterious features of Latin that's that early that scholars are, are still trying to puzzle out. This is one aspect that for the study of, of Greek and Latin linguistics, you need to go back as far as far back as you can go in the documentation and see some very interesting material, uh, depending on your interest, the kinds of uh, studies you might be taking up. Um, sure, you would then go ahead and study uh, the development of the language in all of its periods as, as far as you want. So I've uh, sometimes taught a course on vulgar Latin, which basically means late Latin, um, the stage of Latin just before it was developing into the Romance languages. And that's extremely interesting, too. That's a, another type of linguistic study that one can undertake. So you can study the you know, the nature of the language and how it develops at any period. Uh, it is very important for the type of historical linguistics that was most exciting to me to go back and look at that really, really early stuff. On the Greek side, the obvious sort of uh, material that one one would think of is Homer. For people working on Greek linguistics, Homeric language is extremely important as the earliest documented type of literary language that we have. But we also have Mycenaean Greek. And so this is this has become a kind of a strong area of interest for me is the study of this really, really early form of Greek that goes back to um, about 1400 BCE. Again, well, now we're talking about half a millennium before or so before Homer. Amazingly interesting and precious documentation of an earlier version of, of the Greek language. Uh, you, you've got to go back as far as, as far as we can, and Mycenaean Greek is it on, on the Greek side. Well, as a linguist, I must ask, do you think we will ever be able to fully understand and decode linear A um, tablets that we have. I know that I think people say, oh, no, I think it's just too old. We're not going to be able to crack that code. But um, in your opinion, do you think we, we might be able to? There's actually a certain amount about linear A that's known. A number of the symbols that are used in spelling linear A words are the same uh, as symbols used in spelling Mycenaean Greek. So there's a certain certain amount of overlap in the writing systems. For that reason, well, we can see in some linear linear A tablets what the topic is under discussion. We know the meanings of some words like um, we can see that there is an inventory of food products that are being um, listed. Uh, and then at the end, there's a word that means total, <laughs> we can see, and, and then there's a number. A certain amount can be interpreted in the linear A texts. Questions still remain as to the affiliation of the language. Uh, what kind of a language was it in terms of its grammar? And was it related to any other ancient languages that we know about? All of that kind of thing, as far as I'm concerned, is still very unclear. 
Um, I don't want to say that we'll never know some, some of the answers. There's not a lot of clarity about a lot of features of linear A, although some things we do we do understand. Well, I'm going to just keep hoping that maybe we can get there. Um, but I am very happy that we have made a lot of advancements and 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 um, you know we know we know more now than we ever have before. So we're we're trending in the right direction. But I want to turn a little bit to so you've mentioned Homer, which yay I I love Homer obviously as a as a classist I love Homer, but. So for just general audiences, some people definitely are aware that not only was Homer extremely unique in his style, but then, you know, you have to recite it. Well, you don't have to, but it should have been recited in meter. I've definitely come across people who've said, you know, well, was this the norm? Why was it in this specific meter? Were more things meant to be recited this way? Uh, Kind of, you know, why do we only sort of hold Homer's works up and point to it and say, ah, yes, example, here we go. So as someone who's worked a bit with meter, you know, can you tell us what's so special about meter and Homer? Um, Actually, this is uh, an area that I happen to get very interested in, that is the study of meter. Um, And I ended up uh, doing some work on meter in uh, Sanskrit, uh, as well as in Greek. In fact, the question about the background of the Homeric meter, namely the dactylic hexameter, is fascinating and in some ways very controversial. There are basically two sorts of positions. One position, which actually goes back to some of the earliest um, serious uh, studies of work on Greek meter, and I'm talking about uh, work by Antoine Meillet, who was the figure who really established the whole possibility of reconstructing information about Indo-European, that is Proto-Indo-European meter, He looked at the dactylic hexameter of Homer and saw so much that was so different from uh, from Sanskrit meter and from the Aeolic meters of Greek lyric poetry, which are very similar uh, to Sanskrit meter, that he kind of threw up his hands and said, well, um, this is just not Indo-European. It probably was borrowed from some other culture maybe like the Minoans or something like that, which basically which basically says, well, we have no idea where this meter came from, might have traveled around the ancient Mediterranean and gotten picked up by, by Greek speakers at some point, but that's all we can say. So that's one, that's one approach, which is um, not very satisfying. The other approach that has developed in a big way in recent times is kind of the opposite. And it provides analyses of the dactylic hexameter that do take it back to various forms of Proto-Indo-European meter. Well, there are several different versions of this, but one of the most popular, the, the basic kind of approach that I think is most promising, is the one according to which the dactylic hexameter is actually a combination of two shorter lines, something like, say, an eight-syllable line and a seven-syllable line. And when they got sort of strung together, you end up with what looks like a single line of about 15 syllables. 
and then you repeat that line in sequence and you um, you can produce, um, if you work out various permutations, you can produce the, the dactylic hexameter. So in a nutshell, I think actually we are arriving at some clarity. Um, we at least have a number of attractive theories about the possible Indo-European background of the dactylic hexameter so that we can kind of make some sense of how it developed, uh, how it started and how it developed in, in Greek. I think uh, that's uh, what you're asking is a really important question that uh, really has, has gotten a lot of attention in scholarship in the past, um, past few decades. Well, I'm excited that I sort of tripped into that one then, um, since I, I'm not really in linguistic circles. I'm always really on the lookout, let's say, for hot topics of debate within a lot of different subfields. And like, I find it fascinating. And I think a lot of people would be fascinated in it, too. It's just it's hard because we don't tend to, you know, go out and, and shout about, ah, and here's the latest hot topic discussion. But I'm, I'm really glad that I learned about this one. I had no idea. I thought, you know, oh, okay, well, we talk about dactylic examiner with Homer, and that's great. And okay, it's special. And I thought that was that. So I'm really happy that you've been able to sort of come in and explain what what, what really is, is going into this. And and that kind of leads me in, into my next question, which is, I just got back not too long ago from studying in Greece, and I took some modern Greek so I could go and at least learn to sort of make my way when I was living there. But having had my background in taking some ancient Greek and noticing the differences, I don't think a lot of people realize how different modern and ancient Greek are. And so as someone who's studied, you know, where they come from in this development, um, you know, can you tell us a bit more about like, why is ancient Greek so different from modern? Because I think people just assume, oh, well, if you've learned one, then learning the other one should be super easy because it's all Greek. I have to preface this by saying that um, I have not spent a lot of time working on modern Greek, although I know I know some things about, about modern Greek and about how the language developed uh, in post-classical times. Now, now you're getting into a, a very general topic, which is the question about um, what linguists refer to as the universals of language change. The fact is that all languages are constantly changing. And uh, as I sometimes um, tell my students, all you have to do is kind of think about things that you say that um, that are different from what your parents said and things that that your parents say that you would you wouldn't be caught dead saying languages are are undergoing change all the time in all respects so that includes the sound system and the grammar um you know in, in a language like Greek, that means things like case endings and verb endings all of that um, sentence structure phrase structure all of this, potentially is subject to change over time. Now, some languages seem to change more rapidly than others. It's something that linguists can't really predict is the rate of change, but um, the fact of change is, is absolutely certain. We have continuous documentation over 
uh, maybe a longer period than for any other any other human language. Uh, if you start from Mycenaean Greek and go up to the modern age, um, we're talking thousands of years of continuous documentation. And so, not surprisingly, lots and lots of change has occurred to the language. Already in um, in ancient times, things things were happening that lead to some of the features of modern Greek. So, for example, when students study classical Attic Greek for the letter Upsilon, you're taught to pronounce it kind of like a French U sound or a German U with umlaut. So for an Upsilon, you're supposed to, you know, use a E type of pronunciation. But that actually is a relatively new development during the classical period. In earlier times, it was actually an ordinary oo sound. So that change already happened by the time of classical Attic. And that's a kind of precursor to what happened to the rest of the vowel system, where a whole series of vowels ended up with the pronunciation E. So as you know from, from modern Greek, um, there are lots of vowels that actually all sound like E. And so that's something that that uh, developed um, already uh, starting in late classical times and into the Byzantine period and then on into the modern period. So um, the whole vowel system has changed, which means the pronunciation of words that might even be spelled essentially the same as they are in ancient Greek, um, they get pronounced rather differently in modern Greek. And so similarly with any other part of the, of the language you want to think of, say the case system, well, uh, Proto-Indo-European had eight cases. Classical Greek only has five cases. So, big change. Modern Greek, well, they've whittled that down a little bit more. So, um, it's the same thing. So as long as you have a sufficient uh, period of time, then the language is going to change. And um, we can at least say that some types of changes like changes in pronunciation, changes in grammar, changes in syntax are are inevitable. It's just a matter of, um, you know, when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen. So this sparks uh, an idea that I had uh, it, it was born out of a conversation I had with a, a colleague of mine and I was going along and, and trying to, we were just trying to have a conversation about the differences between ancient and modern. And I was pronouncing things. And I, I remember he remarked, Oh, well, you've got quite a, quite a modern pronunciation there. And I said, well, it's, it's basically this, the same word, but I guess I'm doing a more modern sound. Uh, and then we sort of got onto this topic of, you know, accurate quote-unquote pronunciation and I just remember you know in, in the spirit of a, of a nice debate he just said well I think to be more accurate if you're using it in the ancient way you should say it with the ancient pronunciation um, and I said oh well I mean I, I, I guess but even the one you learned probably changed a lot from what it was before so can we even say it's accurate? Can we say it's more accurate to that era? Um, neither of us are linguists, so we kind of left it there and just said, okay, well, I'll pronounce it this way and you can do it that way. But because of this change, this constant evolution, can we ever really say something is 
accurate um, because I know a lot of people like to go around these days and sort of armchair critique people and say, oh, well, you know, in, in this thing, they pronounce this differently, so therefore it's wrong. Or this one, ah, they use, you know, this error's pronunciation, so that one's right. Um, you know, is is this sort of just we do it because we need to find something to relate it back to to base ourselves? Because can we ever really call something completely accurate? Yeah, that's a great question. And and it's, again, something that comes up a lot in, in my teaching. When we talk to students about ancient Greek and, and Latin, even, even when I teach a beginning, a beginning Greek or Latin, which, I, which I've done, the question of pronunciation uh, obviously comes up. And um, there's always, there's always uh, a question, well, how, how do you know what, what they were saying? How do you know uh, how they actually pronounced these languages way back, uh, way back in those days? Well, uh, the answer is actually we do know quite a lot, and it's fascinating to to think about the different uh, types of evidence that we have about how these ancient languages were actually pronounced. And I'll get to that in a second. But I, I want to also say that there are some little areas, little pockets of interest where we don't know the answer. So we know a lot about how ancient Greek pronunciation was was like, what it was like, uh, and similarly about Latin at various periods, but not not quite everything. So this is this kind of gets back to the problem solving approach that I talked about earlier. Um, it's a question for which there are some definite answers, and so I can say uh, if I listen to somebody pronounce pronounce. Um, let's say, classical Latin, reading a text of Caesar or something, I can say, well, um, that's wrong. Uh, that person doesn't know how it was actually pronounced. And we do know. So just to go back quickly to the question of evidence, um, there's actually quite a lot. Some of it comes from ancient grammarians themselves. So there were ancient linguists, we might as well call them linguists, they were interested in the languages that they were speaking, whether Greek or Latin, and they went to some trouble to talk about it and write about it. And sometimes for pronunciation, they were extremely detailed and, as far as we can tell, accurate in making and coming up with these phonetic descriptions that uh, any modern phonetician would be able to interpret in a reasonable way. We have a lot of information from the ancient grammarians themselves about how to pronounce their language that's readily interpretable. Uh, and so we need to make use of that to, uh, to figure out um, what they were actually doing. Another type of evidence comes from the study of inscriptions. Um, so, yeah, I, I mentioned these very ancient Latin inscriptions uh, before, but we have inscriptions in both Greek and Latin from various periods. And the great thing about inscriptions is that they never went through a process of editing and copying the way all of our ancient manuscripts did. So when, you know, when we read Cicero or Aeschylus, um, we have this really bad situation where the original manuscript that was written by these uh, great authors is nowhere. And all we have is 
copies of copies of copies of copies and lots and lots of mistakes entered into the process because the monks in the monasteries were some, sometimes uh, even ignorant of the languages and working in poor lighting conditions. And we end up with these, these really um, messy manuscripts that have to be cleaned up. Well, we don't have that situation with inscriptions because we've got the thing itself the way they actually spelled it, and often they were spelling words the way they pronounced them. So we can look at some spellings on inscriptions and say, oh, oh, so that's what they were doing when they when they were pronouncing such and such a word. Later on, some normative uh, orthographic uh, system might have entered into the picture and kind of uh, altered uh, altered these spellings that happened quite a lot. If we look at spellings on inscriptions, we can often see right away that actually they were pronouncing things in in a certain way that may not correspond to the standard normative spelling that we see in manuscripts. There's other types of evidence too. So the evidence of related languages. So Greek and Latin as Indo-European languages obviously are related to other Indo-European languages. Uh, so we can look at those um, and think about how related words were pronounced and what that might mean for the pronunciation of corresponding cognates in Greek and Latin. We can also, and this is this next one is really very powerful, we can look at borrowings because Greek words were borrowed into Latin depending on the time period, vice versa. Uh, both languages had borrowings from other languages like Semitic languages. So if we know the source language, and we look at the, the way a word is spelled in the borrowing language, uh, we can get a lot of insight into how, uh, how the spelling probably was a way of reflecting the pronunciation of the, the word that was borrowed in the first place. Well, and then uh, maybe just to mention one more, we have the way the language is developed in later periods. So for Latin, we have the development of Latin into the Romance languages. And as you mentioned, we have for Greek, the development into modern Greek. And we can kind of work backwards in some, uh, in some cases, come up with what the ancient pronunciation was like using, uh, as part of our evidence, what happened to the words in later stages of development. So there's actually, if you put all this together, um, there's quite a lot of evidence about ancient pronunciations. A few things uh, we're a little unclear about, but really um, we have good evidence for almost everything about ancient ancient pronunciation of Greek and Latin. That's so fascinating. I'm I'm a bit curious. So obviously today, language, just like any ancient language, is always evolving and changing everything from pronunciation to just how we use things. Some things that I, I don't, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but like people in general, I would say, um, would consider quote unquote wrong. Like it's either the wrong word or the wrong tense or something, but, but the trend of people using it so much incorrectly. I've noticed some things have now been added to the dictionary as correct just because so many people have gotten used to either pronouncing or saying something incorrectly and was this something that also happened in ancient times where maybe something wasn't 
right, quote unquote, but so many people decided to just use it or didn't know better. So did they actively add things to to their corpuses of, of their their ancient dictionaries? Yeah, this is this is just a standard part of language change. So as you say, um, after a while, uh, if enough people start to start to do some things to pronounce a word in a certain way or to uh, to use a particular type of uh, syntactic uh, pattern it enters the language um, it kind of uh, spreads across the the groups of language users and becomes standard if a dictionary gets written or a grammar gets written well yeah you have to take that into account the simple answer is yes all all of that uh, that type of thing uh, has happened. And so uh, if you look at, say, a grammar of New Testament Greek, well, uh, there are all sorts of features of New Testament Greek that that don't correspond to the classical attic that gets taught in, in school. They're not wrong. It's just a different type of Greek that reflects a later stage of development. Maybe at a, a certain stage, it would have been um, w- would have sounded wrong to to some Greek speakers, but eventually uh, it became normal, um, and so we just have a different a different type of Greek. Well, that's just one more connection showing that um, we're not so different after all. The ancients did it; we did it. We're six degrees of separation, but we're all still we're all still the same after a couple thousand years. So I love having that little bit of connection to the people in the ancient world. I think it's it's fun to know that, hey, they were doing the exact same thing. So sometimes if we're sitting here thinking, oh, this was strange. Why did they add that to the dictionary? Like, this doesn't sound right. We should tell people stop using that and try to get it out of circulation. But um, you can't you can't fight uh, fight that for forever. So it's it's kind of cool to know they did it, too. So when we think of old language that is definitely a thing of the past today um, that we think sounds funny. And while some people might have a pretty good grasp of understanding it, some people might just say, you know, I my, my brain doesn't get this. I don't know what this is saying. So for us, it would be, I'm thinking, you know, some people struggle with Shakespeare. Um, I, I grew up with a, a father who loved it. And so I was just in Shakespeare. So my brain, for whatever reason, did not have too much trouble understanding it. But my mother and several of my friends, they needed the No Fear Shakespeare to be translated into something a a lot easier. And so I'm wondering, you know, for some of these ancient peoples, let's just say in the classical periods for, for both the Greeks and the Romans, you know, what would have been kind of the equivalent to Shakespeare or even any kind of other old, um, Old English publication. I mean, I'm thinking Beowulf or something that we just, you know, you're like, but it's English and I can't read it when I open it. And I, you know, and then you look at a word and you say, I think I could almost maybe guess what this is. Um, You know, is this something that they also encountered a lot and and just said, oh, this would be kind of fun to try to figure this out. It's a little harder to answer for Greek and Latin because the ancient authors that we that we read didn't really have the distinction between old english and and modern english which is just so different they really didn't have much like that um but there there are some similar things so in general on the greek side homer would be uh would be a kind of touchstone for a lot of ancient greek authors who 
who obviously didn't write that way, although some of them did actually. So, so somebody like Apollonius Rhodius, let's say, was perfectly capable of writing Homeric Greek, but that was copycat sort of behavior. Other ancient authors, um, they made use of Homer. Homer was a revered author who was highly influential, but mostly very different from uh, from the kinds of things that ancient, even ancient poets uh, were were writing, unless they were consciously imitating Homer, like Apollonius Rhodius. Part of the reason is that Homer's language actually does not correspond to any any real Greek at all. In other words, no one ever spoke like, like Homer. Um, it's a very artificial type of Greek that's unique. Uh, it's literally unique. There is no other uh, no other type of Greek that's like that. So ancient Greek authors after Homer were kind of constantly looking over their shoulder at Homer and making use of it in various ways. But uh, apart from some conscious imitators, um, they they weren't really doing that. On the Latin side, well, there were some uh, some ancient authors like uh, Aeneas and Livius Andronicus and Nevius, some of whom wrote uh, in meters that were no longer used in the classical period, particularly of the so-called Saturnian meter in early Latin poetry. This was a type of meter that was ridiculed. People like uh, Horace, for example, talk about Saturnian poets in a kind of dismissive way. They certainly were able to understand what the Saturnian poets were writing, so the language was not all that different. Some later authors were kind of critical of this earlier type of earlier type of writing and had a particular kind of negative stance towards the meter and the poets who were working in that kind of meter. But it varies. So a figure like Cicero, Cicero, for example, is constantly quoting early Latin poetry. He's a great, great lover of the poetry of Ennius, for example. Ennius would be uh, felt as old-fashioned. Uh, he writes in Dactylic Hexameter in his great poem, The Annals, but it's a type of dactylic hexameter that's quite different from the version that's used by Virgil or Ovid. But Cicero loved that stuff and was constantly quoting it. Attitudes could vary towards the older the older literature, but the situation is um, kind of different because the differences between the earlier language and the later language were maybe not as stark as what we have between say, Old English and Modern English. Quite understandable, obviously. Not as much to go on. They were, we, we just have more history and more things to, uh, to sort of base ourselves around than they did. But this does lead me into a lot of, a lot actually, of contemporary media adaptations or just creations centered in the ancient world. They, I've noticed a trend of trying to incorporate more authenticity to what they're doing. So a lot of new, or not new, but shows, let's say, or films have tried to incorporate some some ancient languages um, just so they can have that feel. And I'm wondering if there's a particular show or film that you think has 
done quite well uh, at integrating uh, or showcasing um, an ancient language. I'm not, I mean, I, I actually am kind of a film buff, but I am having a hard time thinking uh, of films that make use of ancient languages in that way. I know that film by Mel Gibson, I think, that used uh, Aramaic about early Christian on early Christian themes. Another film which I think in which Mel Gibson was also involved as a director at using uh, South American uh, indigenous language. So the film was entirely subtitled and spoken in in a South American indigenous language. I, I think that's great. The process of forcing the viewer to kind of enter into this world that's uh, at first maybe seems alien because of the, the language, but soon becomes much more familiar, kind of riveting, provides um, a, a really a really good experience for viewers. I, I know there was some controversy um, with that first film I mentioned, the one that made use of Aramaic. Uh, some scholars were unhappy that some of the linguistic usage was actually incorrect in certain ways. Um, well, sure, as I mentioned, um, there's some things we we know about ancient pronunciation uh, or syntax, for example, but other things we don't know and maybe never will know. But if you're going to produce that kind of that kind of artistic work, then you have to kind of take a leap and uh, and and go with what you have and. Um, and not worry so much about about the rest. So that that kind of thing doesn't doesn't bother me so much. Oh, that's good to hear from from a linguist, I should say. Um, and I believe, as as you were describing them, I believe the Aramaic one was Passion of the Christ because that would make sense. And I believe that the other one you mentioned was I I think it's called Apocalypto about the the Mayans or. Aztecs or something. That's correct. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, that's that's the one. Those are exactly the ones I was thinking. Okay, good. So if anyone has not seen them, now you can go find them. Those are the titles. Um, but yeah, no, as you were talking, I was thinking some shows have made a great attempt. And even if they couldn't have actors maintain uh, ancient language for, for long, because it is it is hard to memorize and pronounce things, I, I do feel that some do make an effort and succeed. And I wish more would take a risk. The The ones I can pull out just off the top of my head would be I um, when I watched the Vikings TV show on the History Channel, um, they did this clever thing where they would have some of the actors speak in what they're calling Old Norse, quote unquote. Um, and then you have some characters speaking Old English. Um, and it was really clever because you would have some extended scenes if it was all just one language um, filmed and, and attempted to pronounce in that language. But some when you had characters speaking at each other in a different ancient language, they would start so you got the idea and you were pulled in that, ah, okay, so now they're speaking in their own language and then they would either have a translator, quote-unquote, a character who you've seen who can speak both languages and then, of course, they speak to the audience in English, but you you know he can speak both, so you go, ah, okay, so he's translating and this is just accessibility for us, so um, I'd like to see more of that. But yeah, I think those are just the things that I was... Uh, that bringing to my to mind um, right away. So, 
Um, there's there's so many more linguistics questions I, I want to be able to ask, but um, I don't think either of us have time in, enough in the world for that. So um, I'll, I'll have to, to save those questions for a later date. But um, sort of toward the end of the interview portion of the podcast, I just have a couple more questions for you. And the first one is when you were an undergrad or grad student, did you attend office hours? Yes, um, I did. It would sort of depend on the 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 relative difficulty I was having um, with with coursework. Um, but sure, I, I certainly did. And do you have a specific memory of either a great conversation or experience that happened uh, when talking to a professor? Um, something just fun? Let, let me share something that's kind of similar. It's not exactly an office hour uh, situation, but it's a it's a one on one course situation. When I was in grad school, uh, and I wanted to study Mycenaean Greek. It was not offered as as a regular course, but there was a faculty member who was a great specialist on Mycenaean Greek. So I was able to enroll with her in a one-on-one type of course. And so I met in her her office a couple times a week studying Mycenaean Greek. And so that was great. There was um, um, obviously a lot of a lot of interaction, and it was you know the sort of ideal type of uh, teaching situation and a great way to learn. The thing that I'm I'm kind of working up towards is the final exam, where the instructor pulled out her handbag, opened it up, pulled out some plaster casts of tablets in linear B that she had borrowed from the museum and said, here, read these. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was a pretty big shock. Um, I was not prepared for that type of uh, final exam. Um, but somehow I managed to manage to get get through it. Wow, what a, a, a practical exam! I this is something that I only joked about when I was an undergrad. I took a ancient sport and spectacles class in undergrad, and to try to get out of the exam, we were joking that um, we would like a, a practical final. So you know, we were saying just give us a slingus, and then we'll, we'll demonstrate how to scrape the oil, and then. Maybe that will show you that we know what we're doing instead of having to write it down on a piece of paper. And uh, we, we pitched that to our professor and um, he was a good sport, but he said, yes, well, I would like that. But the rest of the university would not. So unfortunately, you're out of luck. We will be having our normal final. Uh, so that was that was the end of that. But um that that would have been uh, a bit stressful, I can imagine. But at the same time, that's pretty cool that she even had plaster casts of these tablets to to bring to you and say here read these as a professor now yourself if you were to give like a 30 second pitch for why students should go to office hours it may be beneficial what would you tell them in a practical way uh, there are all kinds of benefits that come from uh, developing some personal contact with with an instructor a lot of times students don't realize that until i'm thinking particularly about undergraduate students uh, they don't realize that until the point comes when they say are making their applications to medical school or law school they need recommendations they've been taking a course um, or courses with hundreds of people in the class 
and they've never gone to office hours. That can be a big problem. Uh, you need to develop a personal connection with an instructor if you want to get a supportive uh, supportive letter of recommendation. But that's, I mean, that's just, you know, very down-to-earth kind of practical consideration. There's just a, a kind of um, engagement with the subject matter uh, that comes with one-on-one -on -one contact with somebody who is an expert about uh, about the subject. And the other thing is that, of course, it's not possible, it's never possible in, in any course for the instructor to convey everything that uh, that may be important about or interesting about a particular subject. And there's so much more that that you can learn about um, just by going in to chat uh, during office hours about the subject matter. No, it's it's great. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I loved living in my professor's office hours. So anyone who has great things to say about uh, office hours, I agree with. So at the end of each episode, I ask if my guest will read Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And then at the end of it, I would be curious to know your thoughts on what do you think about this poem? Because it, this this is a poem that has been cited by many people as being quite influential and quite powerful. And so I'm interested to know if you, one, agree with this assessment. And yeah, just two, what do you think of it as a, you know, a historian, as someone who can look at it with uh, historic? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, 
Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Well, that's uh, that's a great poem, um, which I confess I haven't read and read since high school. It's a wonderful piece of work. We're uh, engaged in in the work of digging <laughs> digging out uh, digging out from the sand um, all sorts of things like that. Whether it's uh, as an actual archaeologist or as an archaeologist of language, I think uh, in a way that poem sort of inspires me to realize that this activity of of digging out this this ancient material uh, has some has some value there are all sorts of things one can find that um, would not be immediately evident i take that sort of positive note from what otherwise i think probably most people interpret as a kind of negative assessment of um you know what happens to things uh, over the course of time yeah i mean definitely it i read it in high school as well maybe maybe earlier but i can't really remember if i read it before but i definitely know in high school i read it and it instantly became my favorite poem of all time um because i guess since being drawn to the classics it it struck me as quite the memento mori and, um, y- you know, I, it did speak to me of sort of a political nature of what Shelley was going for and um, the fact that it, it's sort of a statement on the ephemeral nature of power, of humanity, of building things and, and what will last uh, and legacy, monumentality, all these great themes. And um, so the last question I ask every guest is if we consider the poem that way in those themes. If we think about our contemporary society right now, do we have a modern equivalent of Ozymandias? Do we have something that we think is long-lasting and amazing and will be here forever and is very powerful, but um, will humans in 500 years really still think the same? I think for me, the answer is we, we can't possibly know that uh, we can't know the answer to a question like that. We see from this kind of poem and from the study of history that the way we think about current events is not necessarily going to be accurate. I don't know. I'm the kind of person who does not like to speculate. So maybe this goes back to my uh, kind of scientific approach to to language that we kind of started with at the beginning of this conversation. I like to work with data and see where it leads. If I'm led to speculate uh, or guess, um, well, that's that's where I stop. No, it totally makes sense. And I've don't worry, I've had many people sort of kick that can down the road because we just don't know. But it's it's fun to just uh, see and, and consider. So there's there's a lot going around. And um, yeah, 
a non-answer is definitely also an answer and completely accepted. So I did kind of lie and I will ask you one more question, which is where can people find you if they would like to find your work or maybe email you with a, a question? They can find uh, find information on the UCLA webpage um, and specifically either the Department of Classics or the Program in Indo-European Studies. Uh, so both of those academic units at UCLA uh, will have information about me and should provide uh, email contact. Um, I'm very happy to be contacted by email uh, um, anytime and will happily uh, reply reply to uh, to email questions. Great. Well, we will make sure to link your faculty page and your email in the show notes so people can go ahead and, and do so. And so I really want to thank you once again for joining me on the podcast this evening for me. Um, I, it's been such an enjoyable conversation. I always love learning more about linguistics. It is a field that I really wish I had more time to dig into. So it's it's very fun to learn more through conversations such as these. And uh, I hope that you'll return at some point. Thank you. Yes, I'd love to. Uh, I enjoyed it very much myself. Thanks. Thanks for me too. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.